Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where we explore the world of hospitality by chatting with its most colorful characters. Yes, indeed. Good to be in the studio with you, Danny. Good to be with you. And you know what? Before we get to the intro concerning our guest this week, I wanted to change gears and go over some Caddyshack trivia with you. <laughs> okay. So you see, I received... I'll indulge the request. Yeah. I received a strange email to my Scofflaw email account, and this person wanted me to put Tim on the spot and ask him a Caddyshack-related trivia question. Historically, Tim is is batting a thousand regarding Caddyshack trivia. I'm one for one. He's one for one. So the email came in and it reads something like when Rodney Dangerfield's character asks the bartender for a bull shark, what does the bartender say in reply? I know the scene. He says it to Denunzio and the response is, can you make a shoe smell? Wow. Tim. I'm confident that that's right. Two for two. Batting a thousand. Still batting a thousand. And, I felt uh, good. I was, I was actually pretty nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I, if someone take this, took the time to write in, I would assume that they'd pull something well, pretty obscure. You know, the listeners are going to enjoy next week or next time when I go into part two, where there's a more lengthy email written with deeper trivia. From the same person? Same person. Oh, boy. So we'll see. Okay. So I'm up Tim for it. You know keep, keep maybe perfect record. I might have to do a little research. I might have to brush up. I might have to watch the movie. Yeah, maybe. Okay. But yeah, I guess so. Um, so this week's guest is probably the most famous butcher in all of Chicagoland. I, I wouldn't say probably. I'd say definitely. Yeah, definitely the most famous butcher in all of Chicagoland. Um, originally, his path was leading him more toward a career in jazz. Yep. And As a saxophonist. Yep. And which is the correct pronunciation of that. And uh, he kind of found his passion in the culinary world and pursued that. Yeah, you know, early on, right, right after college. And yep. then he went to CIA so for a formal education. That's and, correct. Uh, and ultimately landed a job with one-off hospitality, working as the head butcher and the lead at PQM. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Rob Levitt. You make fun of us, that's taken out immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Any insults removed. What if it's a really good burn, though? (laughs) Yeah, if it's a sick enough burn, you keep it Case by case. Yeah. (laughs) Burn by burn. Um, Speaking of burns, uh, have you ever had any uh, serious injuries in your time working with different meats, butchering things? Um that's a great leading question. <laughs> yeah. I think Just to break the ice, yeah. my, my wife and I, who I'll probably talk about a lot because she's amazing. Uh, we often talk about how when you're in this business, as long as we've been, you start to sort of instinctually recognize when an injury is just a, a nuisance and when it's actually doing damage to you. Mm. So oh, yeah. my perception, and I'm terrible about this, my perception of a bad injury at work is probably way different than most people yeah so like i've got this gnarly looking scar on my arm oh man it and you know i get picked on for saying this all the time but like it looks way worse than it is (laughs) but i was working and i was skinning a pork belly and it was really hot and um everything like all the fat on the meat was getting soft and i think my knife just went right through the skin and took a layer off oh it sounds really awful but it didn't 
hurt. I don't know if that was shock, but it didn't hurt. Yeah, wow. Um, and so I got a bunch of stitches. And the weirdest thing about it was that um, the doctor kept shooting me up with lidocaine. And he kept saying, let me know when you can't feel the needle anymore. And he every, every time I was like, I can still feel it. And he's like, well, I can't give you any more lidocaine. Uh. <laughs> so I don't know. We're out of lidocaine. <laughs> yeah. He was like, he's like, I've given you like eight shots. I can't give you any more. And I was like, okay. And, um, and so, you know, they stitched it up and it's fine. It looks gnarly, but it never really hurt that bad. It looks way worse than it was. Mm. Um, but I think the worst part about that injury was feeling the stitch go through mm. versus the needle or versus the actual cut. Um, you know, I've gotten some some pretty bad burns, but nothing that, like, has disfigured me. Yeah. Or, yeah, you know. You walked in here on your own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, like, it, it's 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 always few and far between. It's always, like, yeah. I'll, I'll get, like, I remember once um, I was the sous chef at Del Toro. Yeah. Pre-Violet Hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made, I was working on a dish um, that was going to use honey that was infused with rosemary and i put a pot of honey on the stove put some rosemary in it brought it up to like a rolling boil and then i i moved it off the stove and let it sit to infuse and my hand was on the table next to it and somebody knocked something over and it hit the handle of the pot and all the boiling hot rosemary landed on my hand and uh my wife who is a pastry chef by trade but uh by training um you know, has dealt with caramel and sugar and that kind of thing a lot more than I have. So I called her and I said, what do you do for like a bad sugar burn? (laughs) And she was like, oh, you just, you know, whatever it is, put it in like cool water, like not cold, but not, you know, not too warm either. Just like kind of room temperature. So I I like have my phone, flip phone, because this is a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, I walk over to the dish sink and I put my hand in the rinse water. I'm like, okay, thanks. And then later that night, she came in for dinner with her parents who were in from out of town. And um, we're talking, we're having a good time, and they're enjoying they're enjoying the dish that I made with the rosemary honey. Um, <laughs> and then she notices this. this bandage <laughs> on my hand, and she's like, oh, it was you with the sugar burn. And I told her what happened. She's like, well, why didn't you tell me? And I was like, because, you know, your parents are here, didn't want to <laughs> stress you out at all. I'm fine, you know, and it left a gnarly scar that's since pretty well faded but you know things like that happen and yeah. you just kind of move on yeah fair enough. i wonder what the uh what the physics of that is you know cool water versus cold instead of cold uh yeah i don't know i mean maybe cold is too much of a shock and it'll blister could be let's go with that let's That's yeah my amateur opinion. Opinion. i'm gonna good, yeah i can call my wife she probably knows oh, she's, she's or the smart one the worst injuries you saw your own or you've seen some other um, more harrowing stuff I haven't seen anything too bad. So I, but okay. So here's a good story. Um, my old sous chef from, I mean, a few different places. He and he opened he opened the original butcher and larder with me. Yeah. His name is Chris Turner. Great guy. Um, one day I was, I actually took a day off. I think it was a Sunday. No, I was always whatever. Doesn't matter. Um, so he texts me a picture of his hand, with like this little scratch on it and he was like that was close i was cutting something on the bandsaw and it slipped and i almost got my finger Ooh. and you know i was like oh man you know i'm glad glad you're okay and he's like yeah just like just a scratch i'm fine but oh wow was that scary 
So I was like, okay, well, that's, you know, and then the next day we, we all talked about bandsaw safety for, for a minute <laughs> oh <my laughs> and, um, and everything was fine. And then this is literally the next day. He's working on something, some like a dinner we were doing or a sandwich or a dish or a soup or whatever. And he takes a cleaver and a head of cabbage and he's nowhere near the bandsaw and he goes to cut the cabbage in half with a cleaver and winds up going into his finger. Oh. <laughs> and how he didn't break his finger is a miracle, but he did have to get a few stitches. Wow, Ooh. but so, was totally fine otherwise. He was fine was otherwise. I mean, he just had a really bad cut and he had to go to the emergency room and get it stitched oh, up, but it was like you yeah. just avoided a bandsaw injury and then the next day Wow. Like almost lost your finger to a cabbage. Had a butcher shot. <laughs> to a Danny, do you have any knife stories? Have you cut yourself? <laughs> um, not a knife. I was polishing a wine glass, a perennial, and uh, the bowl came off the stem as I was polishing mm. it. And the stem like went straight into my into mm. my palm. That was yeah. not sweet. My, my wife once was carrying uh, a bunch of glassware down a flight of stairs and, uh, you know, she was like, uh, I think she was a host and she was trying to help out so she cleared a table and she had like a coffee cup or something in her hand and she she fell mm. and she landed like that and you know a the broken shard. coffee cup went yeah. into her finger yeah it's not sweet yeah how about you tim i think i think just mandolin yeah mandolin the, gets the everyone at some point instrument yeah <laughs> that yeah. always i always start cringing when i get down to like half an inch and I, yeah, i'll just let I'll it throw go. it out yeah, yeah you let it go you don't, yeah. you don't try to get those few extra slices yeah i can't yeah. watch anybody slice on a mandolin yeah i think pqm is one of the few places that I've ever worked where we actually have like the guard for the mandolin yeah. and, and people use it. Yeah, it's smart. Yeah. I mean at Scofflaw we've uh we've banned we always someone always wants to bring a mandolin back on the bar side, the bar prep mm, side. That and seems we're always like we're always reluctant. We're always like remembering the last few injuries <laughs> that happened. This person's always gung ho and then they get injured and then we're like, all right, they're banned again. For the what do you time use being. a mandolin for behind a bar? Um, so like cucumber slice prep oh, sure. is very easy gotcha. on a mandolin. And also depending on how ambitious someone feels like you can do lime wheels on it again, yeah. but Oof. you're sacrificing a good amount of lime. You can do like pineapple kind of half wheels or wheels yeah. on it. But yeah, I would not advise it. Anything no. with like a very rough skin, um, is tough, but cucumbers are very easy. Cucumber seems fine, but yeah. limes on a mandolin sounds like yeah, disaster. And it was. And, and, it, <laughs> and, yeah. it, did, and yeah. it did end in disaster. We have to have a sensitive content warning on this episode. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. All right, let, let's go back now. Okay. So I guess, well, you went to school here in Chicago. No. No? I think you went to UIC. I went to no, U of I in Champaign. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. So where where is not in Chicago. And where are you, are you from Illinois originally? Yeah, I grew up in Wheeling, Illinois, which is, mm. you know, suburb. Cool. All right. So then, and you studied jazz, right? Mm -hmm. Cool. And are you, do you still play? No. Um, so I started cooking my, the summer before my senior year of college. And it was, you know, like I was playing as much as I could to try and pay my bills. Um, but I needed another job and a buddy of mine was, uh, I remember he was going to visit a, a relative in Bolivia for the summer. Hmm. Um, and so he asked me if I wanted to take over his dishwasher job. It was this little, like, grocery store kind of cafe place in uh, in Urbana. And I wound up being the dishwasher there and, and pretty quickly got kind of caught up in just being in a kitchen. Yeah. Um, so I went from dishwasher what, to prep cook pretty quickly. What did you like about it? 
How did you get caught up? In I, I just kind of did. It was just like everything that was going on and watching, just watching raw ingredients turn into food. And, you know, they made their own bread there. So, <clears throat> excuse me, watching, uh, you know, watching them put all this stuff into a mixer and then it came out as bread. It was like, cool. You know, yeah, it was like magic. Um, and just something about like the culture in that kitchen. You know, there was um, one of the guys, like the lead cook, and then the manager of the store were also musicians, and they were in a band together. And I used to go and see them, and they were really good. And then, I don't know, it was just like a really fun... Yeah, I never thought about that, like why that kitchen got me interested. Yeah. And then, you know, I've heard a few other people say it on here, but this is at the same time when the Food Network was relatively new. Mm-hmm. And um, you could still watch, like, Great Chefs on PBS, and Julia Child, and Jacques Pepin, all these people were still on TV. And... Um, and my brother, who is not in the restaurant business, was got became like, you know, the country's first foodie. You know, like he was just super into it. Like he was living in New York City, so he had access to all these amazing restaurants. Yeah. And um, what year is this, by the way? Ninety-seven. Okay, cool. Ninety-seven. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and so you know, for some reason, he would call me and be like, "Oh, you got to turn on the Food Network. They're watching. There's this great show where they're talking about wine." And I remember there was um, there was a show with Kevin Zraeli from Windows on the World. Yeah. And I forget who the other guy was. Um, food writer for GQ. I'll never think of his name. Um, but the two of them had this, this show on where they would talk about restaurants and they would talk about wine and he thought it was the coolest thing. And then at the end of the show, they would talk about a specific wine, a specific varietal. And then... Um, and then taste it and talk about that and then they would have like a trivia question and you could if you could answer the question you could like you know write in or maybe you could email at that point um and if you got all the questions right they would send you like a certificate of completion like you <laughs> completed this course and he he did it and he had this little wine certificate oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, so we got caught up in like that kind of early food network stuff yeah and i just dove in deep and became like a total food nerd yeah yeah that's cool. We've got to um, incorporate that uh, questionnaire into the pod. So that's right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Quiz people. Um, and then were you playing music as well or just studying like composition? Yeah, I was, a, I was a performance major. Okay. I mean, I was a I was a jazz saxophone major. Oh, cool. Sax. So, yeah. So Alto, I, um, tenor? Tenor, primarily, yeah. Oh. Danny, you fancy yourself a sax player, is that I, right? D- I took it up a few years ago. I haven't played in like four years now, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I had an alto sax. I was taking lessons. Um, yeah, it's so great. Well, you pick it up again. Let me know. Yeah, that's I cool. wanted to play sax, but the apparently you have to play the clarinet first at the school i was at a lot of programs are like that that's how i started too. yeah huh. i did that for me it just didn't come naturally i did it for one year and then my yeah. parents were like you can stop it's funny i like to joke with my parents to this day who i mean you know i don't blame them for feeling this way because they very kindly planned for my future and spent a lot of money on a music degree yeah and they were, like any parents, they were my biggest fans, biggest supporters. And then I told them, I was like, so I'm about to graduate, and I don't want to do this anymore. And I want to go to cooking school, and I want to cook. And they were like, they, they just thought I was crazy. And, um, you know, they were like, oh, but you're so good. You're so talented. And, you know. Did you feel like you were talented but just had no interest in doing it anymore? So. Like, did you see a path? 
Yes. Okay. So, like, the thing that frustrated me about music the most was by the time I was ready to graduate, you know, I had I started as an education major, and I learned very. And U of I was a very very good music education school, like, renowned. Um, and I learned pretty quickly. I think it was the first day of class, my sophomore year. I had a, a professor. I was in. A, it was like our first conducting class. And the professor was also the head of the education department. And she said, today, you are no longer musicians, you are educators. So just make that clear in your mind that you still have to play music and you still have to know music, but you are no longer musicians, you are educators. And I think I went home that day and was like, all right, I got to figure something else out. <laughs> yeah. Because my goal was always to be a really great player and get a job teaching because, you know, I thought I could enjoy teaching and like that sort of teaching schedule would allow me to still play at night, play on the weekends, that kind of thing. Um, and they're like trying to convince me that I shouldn't think that way. And, you know, I can understand that like for a really great teacher to be focused on primarily on teaching is it's fine. Although all of the best teachers I've ever had really focused on also being great musicians and still playing. Yeah. Yeah. It seems um, so weird to limit somebody the yeah. first day. Is it to set up an expectation? Maybe, you know, I mean, I think maybe that was their path. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely her path. Yeah. And I think that, um, or students were graduating, hoping to be professional musicians, like getting acclaim and then they weren't. And then they were upset at the school perhaps. No, I think U of I is too big a school for that kind of thing. And yeah. I, I, I think that they, like the most of the people, I think I was in the minority. I think most of the people that went to U of I for education wanted to be really great educators. And, yeah. you know, not just like high school band directors, like mm -hmm. these, a lot of people that I graduated with are now running saxophone studios at universities or trumpet studios at universities, or, you know, they've gone on to much higher education and that's great it just wasn't for me mm -hmm. yeah um so i had to put a lot of thought into where i wanted to take my major and um u of i didn't really have like a jazz performance um program but they had an open studies music program so i worked with my advisor and with the school and we were able to sort of design an open studies degree that was essentially like a jazz degree so i still had to take i still had to be in the saxophone studio i still had to take all the hist music history classes, and I had to do like a lot of the basic, um, you know, bachelors of music stuff. But then I was able to work with my sa my jazz saxophone teacher, and um, you know, I took jazz piano from one of the faculty members, and I was able to take like jazz bass lessons, and so they wound up being a lot of fun. Yeah. But I think getting back to the original point of the question, um, <laughs> uh, you know, like I had friends who were in the music program. And I had friends who were just lived in town that were musicians, and they, they would pick up on things so much more naturally than me. Like, I was never a very good, very good at practicing. I wasn't very focused, and I had a hard time really like dedicating my practice time to things that were going to be more than just kind of goofing around for an hour. Um, and by the time I got to be a senior, I like I, I realized that I had to really dial it in. So I have like somewhere I still have these notebooks that are like down to the minute practice sessions. Like you're going to play this scale for this amount of time and then you're going to play it this way. And like and even with that kind of like structured regimented routine, I still wasn't progressing at the level I thought I should be. And I had friends uh, who would just hear something 
and they'd go into the practice room and they'd come out and they'd be done. They'd be like, they got it. Hmm. And I, I was really frustrated that I didn't, I just couldn't learn that way. And, you know, I had good teachers. Maybe I didn't have a teacher that really knew how to help me focus, but I don't think that's the case because I've had so many really great teachers over the course of my time as a player that I feel like it just wasn't as natural to me as I wanted it to be. Was food as natural for you as you wanted it to be? I mean, it still is. It's still, uh, I still get so ridiculously excited about learning. Yeah. And then, and then when I, when I dive down a rabbit hole about something like, it's like sparks are still flying. Yeah. Um, you know, like, like my sous chef Kyle and I really wanted to dial in our mortadella. I don't know what got me on this kick, but <laughs> you know, something like we were making mortadella and it was good. And I, uh, but it just wasn't what I wanted. Like flavor was fine. Something about the texture, something, just something about it as a whole. I was like, we can do better than this. And then I just like got in totally immersed myself in mortadella, which sounds weird. <laughs> um, and and I got like I got Kyle fired up about it too, and I wound up emailing uh, one of my culinary heroes, a guy named Paul Bertoli, um, has a book called Cooking by Hand, which is my the greatest book of all time for me. Yeah. Um, but he really has Framani Salumi. Um, and he was kind enough to actually respond and answer a bunch of my questions. And we kind of took his information and the information that we had and like put all these pieces together. And it was just like, it's like, um, I don't know how to explain it, but like, like the logic just starts to make sense. Yeah. Like a synergy. Yeah. It's just like, you take all this information and it's just like, you can see the, the whole system coming together. And it's like, well, if we do this and this and this and this and this, then maybe we'll get that result and let's try it. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you know, two or three batches of mortadella later, you're like, I think we're, I think we're onto something. Do you think it went beyond the bologna of charcuterie? (laughs) (laughs) I, I I think so. I think it's, pretty spectacular stuff it's almost like a jazz ensemble coming together wouldn't you say (laughs) (laughs) a little bit i mean it can go it it can always go a million different directions what do you think like crack i mean uh, this is maybe a dumb question given what you just said but like was there one thing that like cracked the code of the mortadella or was just everyone's unique input it was just it was it was discovering it was discovering what we needed to make the texture right and then it was discovering how to achieve that goal yeah. because the way the way it's done on the commercial side requires machinery that we don't have and don't like want to use yeah i mean i'm not going to spend $100,000 on a piece of equipment just to make mortadella <laughs> unless you want to prank someone <laughs> yeah heck of a prank um <laughs> april um, fools <laughs> and i've seen uh now we have the mortadella muffaletta that was just a one-time thing for Fat Tuesday, but okay. we put a mortadella sandwich on the menu two weeks ago. Okay. So it's the the sesame sourdough from PQB, of course, um, a big schmear of burrata across the bottom mm. of one side of the bread, uh, pistachio butter on the other, and then uh, a giant pile of mortadella, you know, very nicely thinly shaved, um, a drizzle of saba, and then some candy pistachio sprinkled on top. That it's sounds ideal. Like Indeed. essentially, it's like three ingredients, and I love it so much. All right, cool. There's lunch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what makes a bad mortadella? 
Um, I mean, texture. You yeah, I think te- for me, texture is the biggest thing. It's, you know, I think that there are a lot of books and a lot of methods um, that you can find online or, you know, whatever in a, in a book that will be a means to an end. But for people who make things commercially to try and turn that into a recipe that someone can make at home, you know, like you guys have seen the kitchen at PQM. Like I have some nice equipment, but I'm limited. Like if I wanted to take my current mortadella and make it even better, I am now strictly limited by equipment. And I'm okay with that. Like I am totally fine if this is the mortadella for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't ever expect to be in a place where I'm going to, want to spend the money on the machinery i need for that um i hope that maybe i am someday but i really don't care um so for somebody at home to want to make better mortadella you know it's just not practical like you have maybe you have a meat grinder on your kitchen aid and maybe you have um you know a food processor and you can make something with that but it's not going to be on the level of what we're doing or what Paul Bertoli's doing or what, you know, people who do this for real are, are doing. And I think the biggest issue is texture. Yeah. Um, and you know, like without getting too super, super, super nerdy, um, you know, when you do an emulsion, um, mortadella is a, is a kind of emulsion called an emulsified force meat. Sounds delicious. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But what you're doing is you're you're trying to emulsify the lean meat and the fat so that you get that smooth, kind of silky texture. Um, hot dogs are emulsified force meats, um, and you know when you run a machine like a food processor long enough, it generates heat, and that's what's going to break your emulsion. It's going to make the fat kind of liquefy a little bit, and then you're not you're going to have like a grainy texture. Um, so a lot of recipes say put ice in with your emulsion and that'll keep everything cold and and the ice will help emulsify the meat and the fat together and that's true and that works but when you are cooking the finished product all that all that water is going to expand and then you get this sort of like fluffy texture which on a sausage is sometimes really great Um, if you have a nice snap on the outside and a nice kind of i don't want to say spongy but kind of like light fluffy texture Mm -hmm. it can be really great on just like a sausage but it's not what i wanted on a mortadella yeah, and that's was one of the biggest challenges I faced was how do I make an emulsion that's not going to break and and have that the texture that I want. What's the diameter of the mortadella? Ours are uh, just shy of seven inches. They're okay. they're they're big. So it's big, yeah. Yeah, that was also the challenge is finding a big enough casing because mm-hmm. you know it's like we can make the same stuff and put it in a, a smaller casing, but that's no fun. Yeah. <laughs> At one point we were putting them in. Um, sow's bladders, which wow. are like this, yeah. Um, but they taper, so we were getting a bad yield. And I found casings online that are there. It's like an artificial casing, um, like made it out of uh, collagen, and they're they're straight and they're about that long and they're like almost seven inches round. Hmm. I saw a chandelier made out of uh, bladders, I mean, bovine bladders, I think, in upstate New York. And the tour guide was like, does anyone know what this chandelier is made out of? And I'm like, it looks like a bladder. It's like, bingo. Nice. <laughs> well, if you if you want some, I know where to get them. <laughs> right. I'll oh, hit man. you up. Yeah, yeah. Tim, it actually looks really cool. I bet. bulb inside of it. Yeah, I bet it does. <clears throat> um, so at what point do you decide to do like a formal food education? I know you went to the CIA. Yeah. I didn't mess that one up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all, it's all good. Um, I, you know, like having discovered 
this in college at a time when you know food was becoming like a popular thing and um i think culinary schools are getting more and more i don't know if they were more popular or just people were more aware of them i um i kind of wanted to go right away i almost quit college my senior year and i was like i'm just gonna quit i'm gonna go to culinary school but um it was one of the few times where my parents said something logical and i actually listened (laughs) and um they were like you have like less than a year left yeah just finish your degree because then you'll have a bachelor's degree even if it's in music it's still a bachelor's degree from a university Mm -hmm. so just do that and i was like yeah they're right um so i did i finished my degree and um i had been working so i had left the little college town grocery store and there was at the time there was one restaurant in town that was doing like serious I don't want to say fine dining, but like sort of more upscale, everything from scratch. It was an Italian place called Timponi's and like made their own pasta, had their own pastry program, made their own ice creams. Um, Is it still around? I believe so. Yeah. Actually, they had two floors and it was it was worked out great for me because it was connected to the music building. Um, Very convenient. Yeah. (laughs) So the first floor was like super casual, tiny little place and you could get a burger and Italian beef and, and pizza. And there's a few other things. Um, best Italian beef I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I haven't had one in 26 years, but like, I remember it being just <laughs> how, insane. How come you haven't had another one? Cause since? I haven't been back to Champagne. No, oh, you've had another Italian yeah, beef. That's okay. had other Italian beef. Oh no, I love yeah. Italian yeah. beef. Yeah. I just haven't had, <laughs> a, I haven't had like, a Timponi's beef. Um, <laughs> yeah. but then you went upstairs and it was more of the like sort of upscale kind of place. And, um, so I got a job there. Um, kind of towards the end of the summer and then I worked there all through my senior year and all the following summer and um, it was great the the chef de cuisine there was like a madman but in the best possible way and um, he had been working there at the at, back then he had already been there for I want to say 12 years um, and we would work all night and then um, I would, ask, I would ask him questions the whole time we were working. Like, I would be on the line cooking, and I'd be like, hey, how do you make this? How do you do this? How do you, how do you butcher a chicken? How do you clean a tenderloin? How do you do, you know? And he was just like, can we finish service? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and then he used to invite his buddies back to his house, and they would drink a ton and smoke a bunch of weed, and he would just cook a bunch of food for everybody, just for the fun of it. After cooking for many hours. Yep. So I signed on. And it was like, I'll like show me how to do all these things at your house, and then you know we'll all eat and I'll clean up. You know, you go hang out with your buddies and I'll clean up. He was like, sure. So we would like there was a twenty four hour grocery store, and we'd finish working at you know between eleven and midnight, jump in his car, go to the shop right or whatever it was, and he would just like he knew the people there so well that he would just go behind the meat counter and pick out the things he wanted, and we'd like go through the store and grab whatever else. And it was like, all right, you want to learn how to break down chickens? Here's six chickens. This is how we do it, you know. And and I would break them all down, and we would we'd grill them or roast them or whatever, and make other stuff to go with it. Or, mm. you know, here's two beef tenderloins. And he would pay for all this stuff. Wow. He's like, as long as you do the dishes, I'll pay for everything. I was like, done. The ideal mentorship. It was great, um, you know. And so he carried over into work because he would bring in like things I'd never seen, like rabbit, and. I'd say, what are you going to do with that? And he'd say, I'm, I'm going to braise the legs. I'd say, what does that mean? So I had no idea. I didn't know what 
I'd never had rabbit. I didn't know what braising was. I didn't know how to do it. And he was like, well, I'm going to do it tomorrow at 3 o'clock. And that was his answer. Mm. So I would show up. I'd probably skip a class. Sorry, Mom. Um, <laughs> and I would show up, and I would just, like, shadow him and learn how to braise things, you know. And then I would go to the store and buy something, and I'd braise something at home. And I just was, like, obsessive like that for years. I still am to an extent, but not not quite at that level. Were any of the other employees kind of shadowing him that way or was it you were just like the star pupil no i mean i wouldn't even say that i was just like the nerd you know um (laughs) yeah you cared the most probably yeah i mean there were other people who worked there that were like into cooking and into food um but most of the people who were there were into it because they were pretty good at it but mostly they were going to u of i for other things Mm -hmm. so there were some people who were there that just worked there um but mostly the people who were working in the kitchen were students. So every, mm. every couple of years, the kitchen would turn over. Um, but yeah, I was the only one who like just was always there, always bothering them about, you know, how do you do this? How do you make that? The, the chef, the guy who owned it was, um, he was like the chef of the place and he had, he had worked in Italy and he'd worked all over and same thing. I used to, I was like, hey, Ray, how do you do this? How do I make this? How do, where, how do I learn about this? And he got to the point where he was like, can we, can we stop at the questions for today? He's like, I love it so much that you're, you know, I think it's great that you're so interested, but I just, I, I need a break right now. He's like, I'll bring in some books for you and we can talk tomorrow. But like, can we just, I was like, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know, but like that, that actual, that was, that's a real conversation. And that was a moment in my brain that was like, Maybe I'm way more into this than I've ever been into music. Yeah. You know, like I didn't approach the saxophone or jazz with the same like sense of purpose. Yeah. Like I never thought I need to go back and listen to like like the people I listen to now, like I know who they listen to, but who did they listen to and who did they listen to and who did they listen to and like what's the evolution of the music that I'm trying to get out of my head? And, you know, like, I recognize the importance of that for musicians, especially for jazz musicians, because jazz musicians are, in my opinion, the biggest music nerds there are. Um, And I think that a sense of history in anything you do is pretty important. Um, You know, like, I've heard enough of the podcast to, to understand that, like, to make, to create a cocktail now, you're gonna have the best chance of success if you have some understanding of the history of cocktails, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like if you if you have this idea, it's probably based on something, whether you realize it or not. So if you do a little bit of research, you can realize that oh well, you know, in the twenties they made this and that evolved into this and that evolved into this. Um, and I think that approach for me is not only important but it's really fun. Yeah. But I never felt that way about music, and it was <laughs> that in that moment that I realized that, you know, like. I, like I said, I'll get obsessive about these things. Like, you know, I, I got this bug, like most of my career as, as a butcher, I've really been into more of the Italian style, particularly with cured meats. And then uh, like a, about a year ago, a little more, I got into the idea of making pate and croute. And that sort of got me interested just in like French charcuterie in general. So now if you go into my living room next to the sofa, there's a stack of books in French all about charcuterie that I'm just like, like it's me and Google Translate and 
Yeah. You know, <laughs> and and I love it. I still love it. That's cool. Yeah. That's, How that's could fun. you describe the difference between Italian and French meats in a way that I would understand? I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just stylistically, I think that, um, it, it, well, in my mind, like on the Italian side of things, it's more the dry cured stuff. Okay. And the French side of things, it's more like cooked charcuterie, pâtés and terrines and different kinds, different styles of sausage. And it's it's more of like like a cooked charcuterie versus a dry cured. They, I mean, the French do dry cured things. They do different kinds of hams and certain kinds of uh, like salami, saucy sone. Um, but for me, it's more of the like the uncrute and the, you know, anything wrapped in pastry that's savory and cool looking. Um, you know, like we worked really hard on a, a chicken liver pate that's more of like a baked, almost custardy style versus just like something that's cooked and pureed with butter and strained and set. Um, both of which are great, but like having that baked custardy chicken liver to me is like better. Does the encrute, like the pastry encasing, mm-hmm. is that for a purpose? Like, does it maintain? You know? I love that question so much. Yeah. Uh, because it speaks to everything we just talked about, about understanding the history. Yeah. And um, the short answer is no. The long answer is absolutely. Um, and I will do my best to paraphrase, but, um, yeah, I've always kind of wondered, but so nowadays the, the purpose of pate and crude aside from bragging rights, um, just that you can do it well is that, you know, pastry tastes delicious. And if you do it right, you can have a cold, you know, room temperature pate that's beautifully seasoned and looks gorgeous and tastes amazing and you can have a buttery flaky crust that's also really great to eat and it isn't soggy and it's just you know it's just delicious um in the old days the way 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 old days the purpose of pastry putting anything really in a pastry crust that wasn't like a pie uh and maybe to some extent it was how pie was born but um was preservation so you would make something like a pate, and because you didn't have good refrigeration, the the pastry would be primarily just like a salt dough. So yeah. it wouldn't even really the purpose wouldn't be to eat it; it would be to protect to the, keep what's the oxygen inside. out of it. Yeah, because a lot of times, you know, this is back like in the way I don't know how long ago, but like when the big grand buffets were like the thing. Like if you were rich, then you would throw a party and you would have this massive obnoxious buffet. And you would find the best chefs to make all the stuff for you. And they would probably have to travel. So they'd make the pâtés and then they would have to travel by horse and buggy or something um, for a few days. And they had to keep everything edible, you know, without yeah. killing you. So they would bake these things in inedible pastry crusts. And then, and so that's how it started. Oh, cool. So, yeah, it's like, it's yes and no is the yeah. answer to your question. That's cool. This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Stock Manufacturing, makers of fine hospitality workwear. You obsess over the details in your space, so why stop at your staff's uniforms? Stock has something for every aesthetic. From fine dining to a corner cafe, they've got you covered. Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. Could we talk... Uh, I guess on the health side of things, when I make chicken, mm-hmm. I'm washing my hands 30 times. Mm-hmm. 
is that completely necessary? What is the best, what, are there rules like, but if I'm making steak, I don't really care. Is there a difference? Is chicken dirtier? Is that just in my head? What's, are there rules for handling meat? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that washing your hands is never a bad idea, just in general, just in life. Um, <laughs> I mean, if we've learned anything from the last yeah, few years, yeah. it's wash your hands a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, should you be more obsessive about it with chicken than with beef? Not necessarily. I mean, if you feel like your hands are clean, um, but, you know, it's it's more important to make sure that, you know, the, the obvious things, well, the obvious to us, like, if you cut a chicken, then don't put vegetables on that same cutting board. Yeah. You know, like, either use a new one or wash it and sanitize it really well before using it again and wash your knife and wash the table under the cutting board and make sure everything is clean. You know, um, I tend to be the same way with steak or anything that I'm cooking, uh, just out of good cooking habits, good, good kitchen Mm -hmm. practice, you know, like surface contact from chicken is more likely to get you sick than surface contact from beef. I mean, we eat raw beef, right? Right. Tartare and carpaccio and stuff like that. So, you know, if you put a steak down on your cutting board and then, you know, chop up some potatoes, you're probably going to be fine. But why take the chance? Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, like, to, to, to be obnoxious about it, like, what if the person who put the steak in the packaging for you had just touched raw chicken? You know? Then yeah. there's a chance that that surface contact is going to get you sick. Is it likely? Probably not. But why take the chance? Yeah. So. Right. And then, so the internal temperature for chicken mm-hmm. is 165. Mm-hmm. If you cut a chicken, is that the the temperature at which it becomes totally opaque, or is because I've had a chicken breast served at a restaurant, you know, mm-hmm. fancy restaurant, and there's a little bit of pink in there, and I'm like, they know what they're doing. This is a good restaurant. You're is still they, here. Yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> mostly, I, I would feel there's so there's there's a few ways I can answer that question. There's a chance that if it was at a good restaurant, um, that they had possibly brined the chicken. And sometimes, depending on what goes into the brine, um, it'll give the appearance of being slightly pink in the middle. And that's just part of that curing process. Okay. Um, so if it was, if it didn't taste raw and it was nice and juicy, well seasoned, what nicely cooked, um, there's a good chance that they might have brined the chicken before they okay. cooked it for you. Or maybe they cooked it on the bone or served it on the bone. And sometimes, especially when you brine stuff near the bone, it'll, it'll look a little bit pink. Um, I try my very best never to serve chicken that is in the slightest bit pink. Yeah, because you don't so, want to deal with. Totally. Yeah. Um, what do you guys say, Tracy from Wisconsin? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. she's not going to want pink chicken, um, and her husband's really not going to want pink chicken. Um, and you know, there's never a good way, no matter how educated you are, to say to a guest, "Trust us, this yeah, is fine." Exactly, yeah, exactly. You know. Mm-hmm. It's a um, losing it, battle. It's, it's, and it's not worth fighting. Then you're um, in an argument with a guest. Yeah, then you get a bad Yelp review. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the walls come down. Exactly. <laughs> All because of that slightly pink chicken. Yeah, um, right. You know, like what I tell guests is cook it to 155 and let it rest. And leave the thermometer in. And once it gets to 165, you know you're safe. Yeah. Um, and if it doesn't get to 165, yeah. put it back in the oven for a few more minutes. Okay. Like it's going to be fine. Um, but yeah, like if, if you're at a restaurant you trust, then I would say that that tiny bit of pink is probably fine because yeah. there's probably a good reason for it. You know, if you're at a place 
that you've never been to and you don't know, then yeah, be more know, cautious. <laughs> um, okay, so going back to maybe the chronology a little bit. Sure. Yeah, where, Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. Right? Where do you? Yeah. Where do you? How do you meet your wife, and how do you open your first place together? Oh, one of my favorite stories. Uh, there's a lot of time in between those two things. Um, <laughs> so I went to New York to go to the Culinary Institute of America. Yep, Hyde Park, not the Hyde Park in the South Side, Tim. Aww. Yes, Hyde Park, New York. Um, and I, uh, so, you know, I was like super focused, right? So I go to I go to school, and I'm like, I'm not here to party. I'm not here to meet girls. I'm not here to do anything other than learn about food. I'm like, I'm the ripe old age of 21, 22. Um, I've already been through four years of college. I've already worked for a year, like in a restaurant. I, uh, I, I left Champagne. I moved back in with my parents and I worked at a place, a now sadly defunct restaurant called Le Titi de Paris, part of early Chicago culinary history. Um, Pierre Polan, who's still around somewhere enjoying retirement, uh, you know, legendary Chicago French chef, uh, had a blast. It was another instance of I worked with a guy who really, like, was happy to let me do as much as I wanted to do so that he could do less. Yeah. Mm. Um, great guy, still a successful chef, but, like, the restaurant had, uh, if you went out the back door, there was, like, a strip mall with a bowling alley. And so, like, he would come in every day, and he would butcher all the fish for service. And then one day I said, well, I want to learn how to do that. And he, he showed me, and then I started butchering all the fish, and he would go to the bowling alley and play video games. Um, <laughs> and it was like, it sounds like, you know, like, oh, what's, what's this guy's deal? But I was so happy that he did it, because yeah. then I got to butcher all the fish. Yeah. Um, but so I went there. I, I worked there for just about a year, and I was going to stay a little longer. I had applied to the CIA, and... Um, and I was going to start in the fall of 98, I think. I don't know. Um, and then they called, the school called me. They actually called me at the restaurant, which I thought was super weird. Hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, it was like somebody came into the kitchen and was like, um, Rob, there's a phone call for you. And everybody looked at me. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I just assumed that somebody died yeah, or for something sure. terrible something happened. Awful. And they're like, you know, hi, this is Mary from the CIA admissions office. <laughs> um, and they basically, they were like, if you start sooner, we'll give you a bunch of money towards your tuition. Uh, because they always had a hard time getting people to start in like June. Because, mm. you know, it was the middle of the summer yeah. and most of the kids that went to school there were 18 or 19 years old and nobody wanted to give up their summer. Yeah. So at first I said no. Because I was like, I know I want to put in my time at this restaurant. And one of the guys I was working with who had just graduated culinary school and was looking at student loan bills was like, you're an idiot. Take the money. <laughs> yeah. So I thought about it for a minute and I was like, all right, I'll call him back. Uh, and they gave me So I you know, basically was like, I'm giving you my notice because I got offered all this money to go to culinary school. Um, so I packed my things and moved east. And uh, I went to school there like super focused on... Just nothing but learning about food. And, you know, mostly stuck to the plan. Um, I had a really cool roommate. And uh, and I he was... So at, at the time, it's like you, you go to 18 weeks of class, then you do an 18-week externship, they call it. And then you do another 18 weeks, and then you're done with your associate's degree. And so my roommate had just gotten back from his extern. So he was exactly half the program ahead of me. Um, but I wound up hanging out with... Uh, with him and with all of his friends a lot. And it was cool because 
they were old enough to where they had all had a bunch of experience before going to school. So like he had worked at um, what's the the really fancy French restaurant in Philadelphia that's closed now. Uh, Come on, Danny. <laughs> I've never been to Philly. Come oh, on. Um, not Lebec Fen. Yes, Lebec Fen. Okay. He worked in the pastry department of Lebec Fen. Nicely done. So like he and I went to Philly one day, and he took me through the kitchens there, and you know we went to a cool a bunch of cool other places, and so that was fun. Um, but I used to go, like my brother was living in Manhattan at the time, and I used to go into the city just about every weekend and, and do stages. Because I was like, if I, like, I don't want to be on campus over the weekend because there's nothing to do except go to bars. Yeah. Um, so I would just go into the city and I would stage places and I would, I eventually got my, my externship because I found a kitchen that I really liked and a chef and a group of guys that I really liked. And I just went there every weekend. Uh, it was a place called the Park Avenue Cafe, which is also now closed. But the chef there is still a friend of mine, mentor. His name is Neil Murphy. He's uh, part of the Merriman Group in Hawaii. Um, but, yeah, he, for some reason, liked me. Because uh, this is New York in the 90s, late 90s, where everybody had, all the customers had tons of money. And there, like, there wasn't, like, nobody knew that there were great restaurants in Nashville, North Carolina. It was New York and San Francisco, maybe L.A., kind of Chicago, and not much else. Um, so, like, every great restaurant in New York City had piles of resumes from people like me who wanted to, who were, like, watching the Food Network and thinking cooking was, like, cool and reading Anthony Bourdain books and that kind of thing. Um, but this guy liked me, and I learned a ton. Uh, I still, like, there is... Pretty much isn't a day that goes by where I don't think about something from working at that restaurant. Wow. Um, so I was working there every weekend until my externship started, and then I just started working there. And then I went back to school. When I graduated, I kept working there. Um, so I was there for a while. But um, when I, I was also working on campus as a writing tutor. Um, you know, especially back then, the culinary industry did not attract the brightest people in a lot of cases i feel really mean saying that but like or the you could say the best writers or exactly you know there are people who are probably very good cooks but just like you could tell that they didn't have the greatest education so yeah. mm -hmm. you know they set up this writing lab and because every the first class you t you took there at the time was like like a short kind of food history class they called it gastronomy and um you had a couple of papers you had to write so I got, I got a job working in there as a writing tutor, and that's how I met Allie. Um, she was just starting and was taking this class, and she, I think she had told me that like she went to college, but she hadn't written a paper in a really long time and just wanted to have somebody look it over. So I read it, and it was brilliant. And like, had, I, I was like, I have nothing. This is great. And what was funny was, and sort of lucky on my part, was that there were like two other tutors in the in the in the writing center who like just didn't notice that she was there because they weren't tutoring anybody. Hmm. So it was me and one of her classmates. And then she was just kind of waiting. And I like, I had read like six terrible papers up at this, up until this point. And this guy that I was tutoring, like bore the brunt of it. And I was like, you know, I was just like, how do you know now? How do you not know how to write? a basic research paper. I'm like, I learned this yeah. in seventh grade. Like, 
topic sentence, your three paragraphs, and your conclusion. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. this is the level we're at here. And I was like, you know, how do you not know when to use a comma? Yeah. And it was, it was, and I was like laying into this guy. I felt kind of bad about it. Yeah. Um, but I think she thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, this guy's like you impressed smart. Allie. Um, and, uh, you know, I could go on and on about about that but um but yeah so i read her paper i was like this is great and we just wound up talking for a while <clears throat> and then um clever me i was in uh bread baking class and we used to bake bread for the whole school and i had to deliver bread to one of the kitchens kind of across the, the main building was this huge building and like bread baking was over here and this kitchen was like in the basement on the other side of the building so I grab the, the bread and I'm walking across campus or across the building and I see her classroom and I recognize a bunch of people and they're like, oh, that's, that's her class. And I look, I'm like, they're going to break for lunch soon. <laughs> so I like sprint down, like, here's your bread, guys. And I sprint back and then I like, you know, kind of like, yeah. and then I casually walk past as, as they're leaving to get in line for lunch. And I was like, oh, hey. <laughs> and, and we start like, you know chit-chatting and was like i should probably get back to class but you know if you're not doing anything later and it was like the only time i've ever successfully confidently asked a girl out yeah you know and uh and it, it worked out it worked well. out yeah it worked <laughs> out well. very well for me it's a good yeah. meet you This podcast is brought to you by Geneva. Danny, what is Geneva? Well, Tim, I'm glad you asked. Geneva is a European spirit with a wide range of flavors and lots of personality. It always uses malt spirit and juniper and other botanicals, so some would place it somewhere between gin and whiskey. It can be floral and bright like gin or round and malty like whiskey. Whatever your preference, there's a Geneva out there for you. Even me? Even you, Tim. This campaign is financed with aid from the European Union. How many years have you guys been together now? We uh, we just last October was uh, our twentieth wedding anniversary. Wow! And we congrats. were together for about two years before that. Nice. So yeah, we're in it for the long haul, it seems. And when did you guys start talking about opening your own place? I mean, we always kind of talked about it, and it always kind of um, the concept always kind of evolved uh, until I want to say two thousand and. Six sounds like a safe number. Um, you know, we had both at different times worked for a guy named Dean Zanella. He came up on uh, Mannion's podcast because okay. he was a big mentor to John and to the two of us. Hmm. Uh, I just saw him the other day. Was telling him I was telling him he should he should listen. Yeah, he should um, come on the pod. Yeah, um, but he's uh, he should actually. He's got some stories for sure, and uh, he's doing some. He's doing. He's about to do some some pretty cool stuff. Um, that I'm not at liberty to discuss. Uh, but yeah, I, I was working at a place in Chicago that, um, I don't want to mention cause I don't like those people anymore. I never really <laughs> did. Um, and I was actually on the phone with my fish rep. That was back when you called orders in. And I said, Hey, if you know anybody looking, I need to get out of this place. And she put me in touch with Dean. And then I wound up working at 312 Chicago for like three and a half years. And then I, I came back just it was supposed to be part-time but you know it was like my morning job and my evening job at that point um 
so I, I put in a lot of time with him, but I learned a ton. And that was actually the first time after culinary school that I butchered a pig. And that's where everything about what I do now kind of started. Yeah. Um, first time I ever got to like make sausages. I tried my first sort of experiments with curing meats. Um, some were wildly successful. Some were horrible failures. Um, but, so, but I worked there for a while and then I left and did some other things. And then Allie wound up becoming his pastry chef for like three years and change. So we both put in a lot of time there, but that's kind of where the idea for the restaurant evolved. And then, you know, we worked at different places until we both kind of got fed up with where we were working and we were like, let's just figure out a way to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that whole story is, (laughs) 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 that's something else. Is there a a cliff notes version of it that you want to get into? Uh, sure. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, but you know, like I was, I was a chef at a restaurant in Lincoln Square, again, like seemed like it was going to be great. And then it just didn't work out very well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the owners just wanted thing, different things than what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, but we had a customer who came in like three times a week, would sit at the bar by himself and would order anything we told him to. And, you know, a guy had a lot of money. And so on a night when the owners weren't there, I said, my wife and I are thinking about opening up our own place. Would you be interested in investing? And he said, sure. And we started writing a business plan and we would meet with him every couple of weeks and show him and he would say, you know, work on this and this and this. And let me call these people. Maybe we can get some more money together and I'm good for this much. And and we thought like, this is it. We're doing this. And we looked at some spaces and we found we found a couple of places that we thought were going to work out. And, and then the guy disappeared. Mm, like just. Whoa. Yep, just didn't, never returned our calls, never saw him at the restaurant again, never heard from him again. Well, at least you had Whoa. a business plan at this point. Yeah, you know, Weird. I don't know how good it was, but yeah. we had something on paper. So odd. So <laughs> yeah, odd. I mean, is it though? Like, It's pretty messed up. It's pretty messed up, but like in this business, nothing like that surprises me. I you guess, know, these, I mean, these it shouldn't happen. happen. Yeah. It shouldn't, but yeah. it does all the time. Yeah. So hmm. then we were like, well, I guess we have to get jobs again. Um, and so she was, she was still at 312 and she was actually, um, running the door like the, she was like the maitre d' at Boca on, uh, Friday and Saturday nights and sometimes one or two other nights a week. Um, which was great because she was getting front of house experience, um, which we thought might carry over, but really it was just like she had hosted before and she thought it would be a great way to make some extra money. Um, and she's really really good at that sort of thing so it worked out like they loved having her there yeah and then there used to be a place that the boca guys owned down the street called landmark yeah before mm-hmm. belena both before belena same space same yeah, space same oh. space landmark was like a club essentially well it wasn't originally but it became by the time i was there it was like it was it was a pre-theater restaurant and then like thursday friday saturday night at about nine o'clock it would fill up with like depaul age club kids so steppenwolf and folks no 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 we're talking like they would get promoters they would get djs no, but the pre-theater yeah, yeah pre-theater oh, yeah. steppenwolf yeah. yeah so once all the pre-theater people left right. mm-hmm. and went to the theater they would fill it up with with uh, with college yeah, kids i and bar back there a few times oh yeah yeah like they'd call <laughs> me over from perennial and they'd be like landmark shorts and bar bags you want to work some extra i was yeah. like sure let's do it yeah <laughs> stuff like that was always happening so but the sous chef there had a lot of stuff going on, we'll say. And um, and they were getting ready. It was like 
end of September and they knew they were going into the busy season and they needed somebody. So, you know, they like Rob and Kevin from Boca, they knew that that I was a, a cook. And so they asked Allie, like, hey, do you think uh, you think Rob would want to come over and, and help us out? And so I did. Um, and it was, you know, it was interesting working for those guys and working in that place. But I did that from like September through like beginning of March. And then at that point we had found Motto. Um, we, you know, we, I don't even remember how it might've been like Craigslist or something where I found an ad for somebody who was looking for somebody to take over their restaurant. And it was like, you know, you create the concept and, you know, we'll, you know, we'll take it from there. And so we met with these people and they were like, yeah, like we have this space. We want to do something cool with it. But he was like, I don't want to run it. My partner doesn't want to run it. We just want to bring in somebody with a strong concept, um, that can, you know, like we'll, we'll, we'll pay the lease. Like we'll do all that stuff and you guys just run it. And so we did. So, you know, we had this concept fully formed that was, you know, rustic farm to table, um, whole animal charcuterie, um, and just simple rustic food based on good local ingredients. And, um, this was 2008 and, you know, we all know what happened in 2008. Well, that's when we, we came here. <laughs> we were BYOB, and we were supposed to get a liquor license. And um, well, you know, they the people who own the space. I for convenience sake, I call them our partners, but we weren't actually partners, which is great. Um, mm-hmm. But they were trying to get a liquor license, or like told us they were trying to get their liquor license renewed or something. And uh, we later learned it was never going to happen, and b- because of them. Yeah, um, but it, it worked out in our favor because being BYOB when the economy collapses yeah. is, and you know, we purposely didn't charge a corkage fee because we were like, if there are other BYOB places, people are going to come to us because we're not going to charge them yeah. the corkage. Yeah. So Smart. our dining room every night was full of people with insane wine collections <laughs> and wine reps. Like, mm. I was just talking to somebody the other day, a, a, a wine rep about. You know, he was asking me about the restaurant, and like every night, it was like you could see right at five when we would open, a bunch of people would come in with wine bags over their shoulders, like they just finished working for the day, and they had like, you know, partial yeah, bottles, exactly, yeah, and uh, and they would sit there and try all the different wines, and they would send stuff back to us. They'd leave bottles, yeah. they'd pour glasses and send them back to us. It was really fun. That's cool. Um, but yeah, we had some some pretty major wine geeks that would come in. We have this one couple who I'm still in touch with, but I mean, this guy, his wine collection is just outrageous. Yeah. And he and his wife, they're an older Filipino couple and they're just the nicest, sweetest people. And he, they love to cook and they just love the restaurant and they would come in and he would come in on a Saturday and he'd be, it'd be like eight o'clock. We'd be getting crushed. And like, I had no step. It was, I was on, I was on the line working two stations and expediting. My sous chef was on the wood grill and Allie was in the dining room, and we had one other cook who did pastry and garmage, and uh, and a dishwasher, and um, he would just come into the kitchen, and we'd just be like, it'd be chaos, <laughs> and he saw where we kept all the glassware, and he would set up right at the pass. He would set up, you know, nine glasses, and he'd be like, okay, so today we're drinking Pinot Noir, and we're like, what the fuck? 
you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he would paint up three bottles with him, and he's like, so we have, you know, uh, we have Oregon, we have Washington, and we have classic French. Yeah. You know, and he's like, I'm gonna pour them in this order. I'll leave the bottles here so you know. And this is, and he's like giving this this whole wine lesson, and we're all looking at each other like. <laughs> and so we finally get a break in the action. We're like, oh my god, this stuff is so good. You know? Yeah, that's cool. Um, he found out that my sous chef really liked Chardonnay. Yeah. Um, so there was a night when he came in and he was like, here's six different Chardonnays. And then wow. at the end of the night, after his dinner, he brought back like a classic French bottle of Chardonnay. Yeah. You know, I think the we looked it up burgundy. and at the time it, the retail price was like 80 bucks. So like not yeah. outrageous, but not no. cheap by yeah. any means. It's nice. certainly not in our price range. And he was like, here, Chris, I want you to have this. And I mean, just totally floored. That's cool. Um, so yeah, we had, we had a lot of fun. It was, uh, it was an insane time. Yeah, and I have so many stories about that place that would just make you like. But uh, we had a lot of fun when it came to that kind of stuff. But th- like the real toll of running that place with a, a partner, air quotes partner, yeah, who you know just didn't care about anyone but himself. You yeah, know, like so. he eventually he would find creative ways to tell us that we weren't making any money, and mm-hmm. it's like you know I know what my food cost is, and I know how much we rang last night. There's money. Yeah, uh, and then you know like. It's a couple months into it, he took over a lease down the street and opened up another restaurant. And then, you know, got new kitchen equipment in his restaurant. Mm. And then, you know, this place closed and was embroiled in legal issues. And, you know, and then he was going to open a place in the suburbs. Yeah. And then meanwhile, he's like, yeah, I don't know if I can pay you guys this week. So it's just a scumbag. Oh, yeah. Scumbag. Yeah, totally. Sucks. So that's when we decided we had to leave. Mm. And then how long until Butcher and Larder comes? Um, the last night of service at Motto, we had already signed a lease. Oh, cool. Nice. And so what we did was we used to do, um, we called them family dinners. And every couple of months, we would push all the tables together and we would have a theme. And sometimes it was just a farm. Sometimes it was, you know, we did like Roman cooking or we would do like a chocrut garni. But there was always a theme. <clears throat> and we would send an email out to, we had an email list at that point. And so for the last night of service, we sent a message out to all of our favorite regulars. And we were like, we're doing this dinner. It's just for our favorite regular guests. And we really need you guys to be here for this. And I mean, we went nuts. It was, I mean, there was like luxury ingredients and just over the top everything. Like we did a gnocchi course where we had these little family style bowls of gnocchi that we'd made just in in butter and really rich and decadent and we served them all and then everybody on staff had a microplane and a black truffle and we're just out at the table mm. <laughs> just like i mean we went nuts. Rain. totally <laughs> and then the next morning uh which was the only way we could do it but it was a tough morning uh, the next morning very early we were it was a monday so we would have been closed that day um i went and got a u-haul pulled it up behind the restaurant, took everything that belonged to us and moved it over to Butcher and Larder Space. Um, and that was it. And we had all our stuff in there. And then what I had worked with, um, a, a good friend of ours was also a successful PR person. And I was like, this is what's going on. And she was like, yeah, I'll totally help you figure this out. And um, she put me in touch with somebody at Time Out and they basically broke the story that we were leaving the restaurant and opening a butcher shop. Oh, that's cool. And nice. so like that afternoon, the press release came out and all hell broke loose. Like my phone was going crazy. I had a thousand emails and it was like, oh, this is for better or for worse. This is the response that we want. Um, and because of our agreement with these, this guy 
for Motto, like we were at will employees. Yeah. We, we weren't like you there were no obligated. contracts. Yeah. There was nothing. Yeah. So we just left. Nice. Um, you know, and I don't feel bad about it at all because yeah. he really, yeah, not really gave it to us. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at one point he, um, while we were still there, we, I had like debt collectors calling us about, about unpaid invoices. And I remember I was calling them all morning trying to figure out how to get these people paid so that they wouldn't like not deliver you food you needed. It wasn't, or, it was beyond that. Yeah. It was like, like you know, we're collections. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, we're going to, we're going to sue or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, he's like, all right, I'll, um, he's like, I'll call this person. They'll write a check and do whatever. And I was like, I have to go down to like city hall and pay this. It was like a whole thing. Like, yeah. I don't remember the specifics anymore, but like, he's like, He's like, I'll take care of it. I'm at the airport. I'm heading to Hawaii. <laughs> and I don't think he ever came back. He like, I think he just like dropped everything and let like left town. Yeah. Yeah. It was start over. Yikes. He's yeah. I think he was over there. running away from uh, a lot of unpaid bills. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. forgive the fast forwarding a little bit, but um, just based on time. And no, I'll like get round and whatever. <laughs> um, how do you come to work for one-off how does that all um i mean you'd already worked at del toro del toro was before all this that was for sure but you knew Um, them through yeah Yeah. so shout out to andrew zimmerman good friend amazing chef i had a great time working at del toro yeah uh and first time i worked for terry alexander so i'm I'm back with terry now which is great yeah so we opened the butcher and larder ran it in that little space for for a little over four years and then we had started working with the people at local foods um, I had known one of the one, like one of the founders of that company, and he approached me and he said, "You know, if you want to expand what you're doing here, let me throw this at you." And so they were they were building out what they are now. It's the wholesale company with a retail store. And he said, "If you want to move in with us, you can like anchor the retail store, and then you know you'll have better facilities, and you can expand like your charcuterie program, and we want to do all this stuff, and eventually make it a wholesale brand." Um, the short, painless version of that story is that things didn't work out as planned, and um, towards the end, there were artistic differences. Um, not so much with with Dave, uh, Dave Rand, and and um, sort of the original people that started the company, but with some other people uh, that were in control and running running that place. So, um, I was pretty miserable, and I ran into Paul Kahn at an event and uh you know paul knows everyone paul knows everything mm-hmm. so <laughs> he, he kind of came up to me and was like what's going on with you man like he knew there was something up so i was like you know this isn't the time or the place but i would love to get a cup of coffee with you and just get some advice like let me tell you what's going on and i would just love some like i wasn't asking for a job or anything i was just like yeah. i just want to know what you think like is it me is it them what should i be doing yeah and so he and I met, and uh, like a week later, had a cup of coffee, and I told him my whole s- story of what was going on. And he was like, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, and he's like, let me, let me talk to my people. I might, I might have something. And at the time, they were looking for a new chef for the publican. I think, um, I forget the gentleman's name that was there at the time, but he was kind of like, wasn't super stoked about being there and he had this other idea in mind that he was going to try and do and they they knew that he was probably on his way out so they started talking to me i had like a few interviews with paul where we just sat down and talked about stuff 
And then, you know, eventually scheduled a tasting and I did a tasting for them. But then like before he offered me anything, he called me and he said, so something else came up. Um, we need somebody to run PQM. And at first I was like, I had it in my head that I didn't, like I wanted to get away from that. And I was like, no, I'm going to go back to being a chef. And I, I'm like being the chef at the publican would be the coolest thing ever. And like, that's what I want. And then I, it was just like getting offered scholarship money to culinary school. I hung up the phone <laughs> and thought about it for a minute and was like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> like, I'm so stupid. So I called Paul back and I was like, never mind. Forget everything <laughs> I just said. I'll take it. I was like, literally, I will take it. Yeah. And he was like, well, you know, we should talk about this because I want to make sure that, you know, like I think... I don't know if publicans like the right fit for you. So I just want to make sure that you're cool with not being there. And I was like, Paul, like, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm not the right guy for the publican. I am the right guy for PQM. That's what I want. And within the last few minutes, I now know that I want it real bad. Mm-hmm. So he's like, well, let's let's meet next week. And I was like, can we meet tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. literally like that. Yeah. yeah. And so I wound up meeting with him and with a woman named Kim Leali, who at the time was like the culinary director for the group. And we talked about a few things, um, a few things from like, what would you do at PQM? And I was like, well, I immediately would do this and I would do this and I like this and I'm, you know, like interested in this and I want to. And I think, you know, I think they liked that I was real, like not only that I was like really eager, but also like knew what what went on there. And yeah, you're familiar and had a vision for how to move it forward. And, uh, you know, we talked about money and the money thing was fine. Like I probably you know, don't hope they're not listening. I would have taken less. Um, <laughs> you know, I shouldn't take less. But, yeah, um, but you're just excited. But I was, be, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. just so just excited about the opportunity. But what they offered me was was great. It was fine. And I was like, yeah, let's let's do it. And again, they were like, okay, well, you know, we, just, we need to make sure that I was like, you guys, like, I am, forget everything I've ever said about wanting to work at the public in. I'm all in PQM. And, I don't um, even like publican anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so he was like, all right, well, let, let us, you know, work on our end and then we'll tell you when it's OK to like tell people and put in your notice. And I was like, listen, guys, I'm putting in my notice now. <laughs> like I will make sure that it's confident and confidential and that um, that they don't tell anything. But like one of two reasons, one is because I just can't wait to tell them that I'm leaving. And mm-hmm. two, I want to give them ample time to figure out what they want to do to replace me. Because, yeah. I mean, I hadn't even been working in the butcher shop for a long time. So that part of it I wasn't worried about. But just just to be, like, a good person. Like, yeah. I'm not going to yeah. give you a week's notice. I'm going to give you a decent amount of notice so that you guys can figure things out. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly it was just because I couldn't wait to have that off my chest yeah so and i told him i was like don't worry word won't get out i won't tell them where i'm going i'll just tell them that i have a great opportunity and that i'm leaving and so i did like and then timeout breaks it (laughs) (laughs) uh no i think eater broke that one um and it was fun because they had they had hired a chef for the publican and so they they put the two of us in this big press release together i remember reading that it was super exciting yeah it was it's it's still exciting to me yeah it's cool yeah um well, before we get to the gratuity round, is there anything else that we should cover or didn't cover? <laughs> you know, um, is there anything else? I don't know. Like, it's been the last few years. Like, I started at PQM um, almost exactly four years ago. Yeah. It was it was like the second week of March or the third week of March, twenty nineteen. 
So I did almost a full year pre-COVID. Yeah. And it was maybe the greatest professional year of my life. You know, like I had some some things that happened at Motto with with Allie that are priceless. Um, and, you know, opening that butcher shop, there were great things that happened there, great press and like, you know, for as, as awful as Motto could have been at times, there was also some really like we met wonderful guests and we got some really great press and, um, you know, a lot of great things came out of that. But consistently, like as far as being supported by employers and being just in a great space with a great staff and just an amazing opportunity like that from March of 2019 through when the pandemic shut everything down was the greatest consistent working year of my life. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and I love one off and I love working for them. And it's not just I'm not just saying it because because I work for them and they might listen to this. But like because they bankroll they, they better. Our listen. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Yeah. I know Terry's listening. Yeah. Um, but I mean, they're just they're just great people and they they really value quality and doing great things and, you know, just having a good working environment. And, you know, the pandemic threw a wrench into everything for everyone. And we're still figuring some stuff out post pandemic. But I feel like they are really focused on helping us figure things out and getting back to a place to where we can be doing really fun, really great things all the time. Yeah. Um, and I just have to say for the record that I have an unbelievable staff. Um, yeah. You know, like I, I just have wonderful people that work for me. Um, like Kyle, my sous chef, who I mentioned earlier, he started at PQM, I want to say nine years ago and as a food runner um, and has, has worked his way up to where now he is like, I don't, I don't want to say he's like my number one guy because he's like my, my number half guy. Like that's how good he is. You <laughs> yeah. know, like he's just so good. And like seeing how, like seeing him go from being like, like a butcher and a production guy to being a manager and a sous chef and, you know, running production and going all in on these ridiculous projects and whims of mine, like he's awesome. Cool. And I just have some really great dedicated people who want nothing more than to have a good time and make great food. Um, and I, you know, I just feel very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I remember PQM was the first time I saw a QR code menu. It really, like, it was one of my last meals before that, yeah, before things shut down. Mm. Yeah, we might be going back to that. We, you know, it's funny. Like we did that for, for obvious reasons, um, and then once indoor dining came back, uh, I think Donnie was the first one who was like, "We got to stop doing this." He's like, "It's so," he's like, "I just don't like looking at a menu on my phone." Yeah, he's like, "I want to sit and look at a paper menu." Yeah. And I think part of it is that, you know, he's kind of an old school guy, and part of it is that. You know, he feels like we shouldn't be challenging our guests with technology. Um, now, I think we're at a place where we might try it again um, because I think our guests are used to technology. And I think fewer and fewer people care about whether they're sitting and holding a paper menu. And I think for our business, it might help it help streamline it a little bit. I think yeah. we're going to try it again, like during patio season, we might have QR codes and see. And, you know, we'll always be the kind of place to where if people don't get it, it's like, well, here's a, here's a yeah, menu. Let yeah. us know. You know, we'll, we'll do, do everything we can to yeah. accommodate. Joiner's podcast is brought to you by Party Can. 
Party Can is a premium batched, large format, full flavored cocktail that uses high-end liquor, real juice, real ingredients. It's all natural, gluten-free. It's 12 drinks in a single can. And guess what? That can actually floats. You can take it to the beach, the pool, on the boat, camping, hiking, to the game, everywhere you go. It is recyclable and reusable. It's a party in a can and everyone's invited. Party Can is available at multiple retailers around Chicago, around the country, and you can always go to drinkpartycan.com to find a local store or have one shipped to you or a friend. And now, back to our interview. All right, All right cool. Rob Lovett, time for the gratuity round. I'm nervous. I hope you're prepared. I've been thinking about it. <laughs> okay. Well, I still don't know what my answers are. <laughs> We're going to start with death row meal. This is the one that I've known for, okay. for years, since before, uh, even before Joiner's podcast. Um, my, you know, do, do you guys remember, there's a, there was actually a book that was published that was like, a bunch of chefs from all over the country, all over the world. That was like, what is your death row meal? Oh, really? Yeah. Maybe they stole our idea back then. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I remember reading it because like Paul's in there okay, and uh, Charlie Trotter's in there. And there's like a bunch I've seen, of like the, where the chefs eat series where like all these chefs compile like places in every city where they like to go, but I've never seen one. Yeah. Of the death yeah. Row it was meals. like a big flashy cookbook that came out. Hmm. That was like, I think it was like every chef told their little story and then published a recipe. That's cool. Um, and I remember like reading through this book at a, like a Barnes and Noble or something and thinking about like, God, what would my death row meal be? And so it would be uh, a ham and butter sandwich. So really great bread, really great butter, really great ham. That's it. Yeah. doesn't need anything else. And then uh, just a table full of my wife's desserts. Um you know, I don't even care what they are. Like, she, I mean, she knows at this point she would know what to make. But just yeah, like, like if it's your birthday, have, what dessert is she making for you? Um, so jokingly, we call it Hoot Nanny Cake uh, because she made it f- for me once. I was working at a restaurant a lot of years ago and I and she made it and brought it in. And one of my servers was from somewhere in like Appalachia or something. And she was like, this reminds me of Hoot Nanny Cake. And I didn't know what that, I still don't really know what that is. We just laughed because she was, she was like the funniest person ever. Um, and so we've, that's what we've called it um, since then. But it's a, a sour cream coffee cake. And then in the middle, she like fills the pan halfway in the middle. She puts this mix of like chunks of chocolate and cinnamon and brown sugar. And it like kind of like crystallizes as it bakes so you get this really amazing flavor and texture mm. but it's this real simple sour cream coffee cake with this layer of stuff in the middle sometimes she puts almonds in it um it's based on a recipe of her mom's and her mom would put walnuts in it but i'm allergic to walnuts so i can't eat them yeah it's good She's uh, or no hazelnuts it was originally yeah. with hazelnuts um but mostly she just makes it nut free and it's the greatest cake ever all right cool. um second to that was a chocolate cake that she made me for my birthday one year that had uh, peanut butter buttercream I'm a big mm, peanut butter guy yeah um but i mean every she makes this like a lemon cake that is unbelievable she makes a chocolate cream pie that like would blow you away i mean everything she makes is like her chocolate chip cookies are just like ridiculously good better than they need to be and better than a cookie has ever been. I That's think, a good litmus test. Yeah. Yeah. And, good yeah. It's like she, she worked at Gramercy Tavern. She worked at all these fancy places and she can make the most gorgeously, stunningly beautiful desserts and very complex and very, you know, high end chefy. And, and you'll be like super impressed, but then she can also make a cookie that will make you want to sit down, you know? Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> assuming you were standing. So, um, so yeah, start with a ham and butter sandwich and then just eat myself sick eat on a table death. full of her, yeah, yeah. yeah her desserts and probably <laughs> drink a really good cup of coffee yeah. with it. All right, cool. Very good answer. Um, what's your favorite hidden gem restaurant? See, this is, this is where it gets tricky for me because between working as much as we do and having a kid, like I don't get to explore as, like I remember eating at Zaragoza when it was a hidden gem restaurant. Yeah, yeah. That's how long I think it's that been. Still since... could count. I mean, so if if that's the case, if if you guys will count that, then that's what I'm gonna say. But we don't really like we're at the point in our lives now to where if we're gonna take the time to go out to eat, we're not going to a hidden gem. We're going to like a place that we know it's gonna be. Yeah. 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 And really, the answer to all your where would you go eat is Lula. All right, Lula. Yeah, it's you a know, solid answer. You know, what's my favorite old school before. restaurant? Lula. It's 20 years old. It qualifies. <laughs> yeah, what's right. my, my favorite place to go and spend my money? Lula. I'll go there for for brunch, for dinner, for a snack, for a night out, for a celebration. That's really, if I can pick one restaurant in the world, that's where I'm going. Yeah. Every time it's I leave, I'm like, if I could just cook like this, I'd like to eat like this every day. Yeah. And like every evolution has been just consistently good. Mm-hmm. You know, like... Whoever he has running his kitchen back there, no matter how different it is than the previous person, yeah. it's like, I don't know how he does it, but night after night, whenever I eat there, it's just so great. I think he's always running yeah, it. Yeah, I think I was he's just, just well, well, no, I mean, like, he's, he's always present. He's always yeah. present, yeah. but like he's got a million things going yeah. on. So he always has like a CDC back there. Yeah. And, you know, he's one of those guys. He's like Paul. Like he really wants a lot of input. Like he wants everyone to yeah. feel like they have something to contribute. So. You know, the, I think a lot of the dishes that you get there are, you know, the sum of a, a lot of parts. And whoever's, whether it's him or a CDC, whoever's tying it all together, they just do such a great job. Allie and I always joke that, like, when we go to Lula, there's a few things we know we want to get. And then there's, like, we'll look at the menu for all the items that either don't sound good or don't make sense to us. Like, if I read a menu description, I'm like, I have no idea how that's going to taste. Or that sounds really weird. Those are the things I'm ordering because yeah. they every time it blows. Yeah, me away. they nail it every time. All right, let's switch gears. Fast food, <laughs> Portillo's. Okay, and what's the order? Uh, an Italian beef dipped extra sweet peppers. Oh yeah, you said uh, Danny thought you'd only had one Italian beef in your entire life. But <laughs> no. do, you, do you have a favorite Italian beef? Is it Portillo's? Um, Portillo's is my favorite beef because it's the one that I grew up on. I think that. My memory of the one from college is the best, but really, practically speaking, Johnny's is the best. Yeah, we love Johnny's. Johnny's. Is so good. Yeah. Johnny's is so good. I just, oh, I'm man. never, I'm there. never going out that way. Yeah. We go out and, of our way. Oh, yeah. I you would go out of my way, but, <laughs> but Portillo's in the last in couple the of summer, years opened that one right off the highway at Addison. Yeah, yeah, and that's like on my way home. Yeah, yeah, which is dangerous. dangerous. Yeah. Very, very dangerous. Uh, um, so yeah, that's my go-to. Good. Uh, what's the product you've developed that you're most proud of? Is it the Mortadella? Uh, I know it's uh, like, like it should be the Mortadella. Bias. Hmm? Recency bias on the Mortadella, yeah. probably. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Like, I think just like the the charcuterie program in general, I'm just super proud of. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm proud of everything at that place. It's really hard to pick. You know, I think that it's it, it evolves. It's like we got so into the mortadella, and I'm still so proud of it. But now we're working on other things. So as as these things evolve, like like now that's the thing I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. And I'm I think I'm it's less about the product itself and more about the fact that we started with an idea and accomplished either accomplished what we wanted or some version 
that we think is really pretty outstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the strangest animal you've butchered? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll keep this brief again because I know we're running low. But like I, Jupe uh, asked us to answer this question. No, Jupe, Jupe asked had a us good to answer, question, didn't yeah. he? He's yeah. done all sorts of stuff. Yeah, he has. Yeah, I, I did a lot of stuff with him yeah. back in the day. <laughs> yeah, he told did, us he, did he yeah. tell you about the alpaca? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that was the alpaca was weird because it's an alpaca, but it was really just like butchering a big lamb. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a couple years ago, I was asked by a buddy of mine, uh, my friend Dave Budworth, who's an amazing butcher out in uh, Northern California. He was the uh, like the creative consultant and judge on a, sh- a short-lived show on the History Channel called The Butcher, and it was like a mm. competition show for butchers. And um, it was it was produced by the same guys that did Forged in Fire, which if you've never seen, is you have to watch this show. Mm. It's like a competition show for like sword makers. Wow, it's insane, um, but it's so much fun. So these people wanted to do a show that was like a competition show for for butchers. And so he was a judge, and he kind of helped them design the show. And um, they called me and asked me to be a creative consultant. So, And this was actually right at the same time. I left for a Burbank the day after I did my tasting for Publican. Mm. Um, so I had to go out there, and part of being a cre- creative consultant is sitting in the control room while they're filming and being like leaning over to the producers and being like, you know, focus on this guy on his on what he's doing with his knife. And then somebody tell Dave to ask him why he's cutting that way. Or, uh-huh. you know, he's put his grinder together backwards and his meat's going to get all messed up. Tell someone <laughs> to mention that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and that's really fun. Um, you know, and sometimes it was like, look at how great this guy's doing, doing this cool technique or whatever it was. But helping the producers point these things out so that the judges... We're on top That's of all cool. this stuff. But then the other part of it was helping design all the challenges. So they oh. would come to me and they would say, we want to do like a steak cutting challenge, but we don't know what we should do. What do you think? And so I would give them some ideas and they would pick one and then I would have to do it. Um, so they'd put a camera on me and they would time me and then I would have to do this challenge. Um, but one of the challenges was they did a whole thing on invasive species. It was a whole show uh, dedicated to invasive species. Oh, yeah. So I didn't get to butcher the 25-foot python. <laughs> Somebody else had done that one. But they had that challenge. It was a python. It was an iguana hmm. and a nutria. You guys know what nutria no. is? No. It is a, yeah, look it up. They're gross. It's it's a, it's like a rodent. swamp rat. It's a rodent. Yeah. They're, they're really disgusting. They have like orangey yellow teeth. And they live in swamps and, you know, because it isn't a normal thing that you would find in a butcher shop or in a restaurant or grocery store, they had to figure out a way to get them. And they found like some guy who traps these things and somehow made like got food grade swamp rodents. It says here they will bite and attack humans and dogs when threatened. Oh, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) All right. So they came... They had been gutted, but they had not had the fur or the tail taken off, oh, yeah. and they were frozen. So they had to somewhere, I just found it, somewhere on my phone there's a picture of a production assistant with these thawed, wet rodents, oh. like, hanging on a thing, and he's got, like, a hair dryer, and he's trying to dry them off because the wet rodent smell, you guys ever wash a dog? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know that wet dog smell? Yeah. Like, <laughs> amplify that by a million. Oh, it was... I mean, repulsive doesn't even... Yikes. So I had to not only butcher this thing, but I had to skin it. 
So mm-hmm. like I had to pull the fur off and do all this stuff and then butcher it into pieces. And then part of the challenge was that they had to like make they had to they had to make stuff out of this thing. And then one of the other judges had to cook something from everybody's table and try it. And so the smell of that thing cooking (laughs) and then like the flavor of it was so off-putting. That is far and away without question the most disgusting thing I've ever butchered (laughs) was a giant wet That's a great answer. Be sure to check out at Joiner's Pod on Instagram for an exclusive photo of the rodents hanging in the studio. I will find them for you. (laughs) All right. What's your favorite cocktail? Ah, what's my favorite cocktail? So I'm not a huge cocktail guy. Um, usually when I go to places like Scofla, then I, I'm just looking for things that I think are going to, like I don't have a go-to when I go out. So typically I look at the bourbon section. I like bourbon and I'll pick something that appeals to me. Like a refreshing or stirred and bitter? It uh, It's typically, I just read through and it can be either. Okay. It's cool. just whatever, like that sounds interesting. Right, you know, nice. like, and it can go and fall in either category. Uh, recently, I did a dinner in December with Ken Fredrickson. I don't know if you guys know Ken, but he's amazing. Yeah. He has um, he has a wine and spirits company in Chicago, and he's a master som. But he's super obsessed with Japanese whiskey. So we did uh, a couple of dinners that were like high-end Wagyu beef and high-end Japanese whiskeys. Super fun dinner. Um, but he told me that his favorite cocktail and like the, the the rage in japan is whiskey highballs yeah mm-hmm. like not much of a cocktail no, it's so good but they're so good so yeah. that's since then that's like if i'm gonna make a cocktail at home i have now a handful of gifted really nice japanese whiskeys and you know glass full of ice some some whiskey and some like topo chico or something and, yeah. and i'm in pretty good shape Love I'm also the other exception is that every year when my wife and I decorate our Christmas tree, uh, I learned this from Michael Ruhlman. Um, he calls it a uh, bourbon milk punch, but it's not like the clarified milk punch. It's just it's a shaker full of ice, bourbon, uh, whole milk. He uses simple syrup, but we started using maple syrup and nutmeg. Shake it and pour it. And it's like it's a good holiday drink. It's it's a great holiday drink for somebody who has very little knowledge of how to make a good cocktail. <laughs> we good, drink right? one and then we're good. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's it's more the tradition than anything. But yeah, they are pretty great. tasty. All right, cool. We had a birthday party for a friend in college where the theme was white Russians. It's just white puke everywhere. <laughs> the, the worst. <laughs> that sounds oh sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, you can only do one. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, moving on. What trivia category would you dominate? We we thought about adding the caveat of what unexpected trivia category because obviously meat you, you jazz yeah, yeah I was gonna say like meat's a little too obvious and yeah. rarely comes up at trivia um, occasions I don't know um, probably jazz or or yeah I mean I would say music but I'm probably limited to like 90s pop and then you know deep dive into jazz mm-hmm. so unexpected trivia that I would dominate I don't know that there is one because okay. like with these things I'm just I. You know, I'm a kind of super nerd by nature. Yeah. To what do you attribute your success? Uh, people. Um, you know, I've been lucky. Like, my wife and I both have very supportive parents, uh, like, amazingly supportive parents. Like, you know, my parents, have, like, since I started cooking, have taken an interest in food. Um, you know, my mom is has always been a great cook, but is probably a more adventurous cook since I started cooking just because she wants to take an interest in what I do. 
Uh, she's not butchering anything at home, but cooking. <laughs> we'll stick. We'll stay there. Um, and then Allie's parents are just some of the most wonderful, nicest, sweetest, supportive people ever. And she comes from a very big family, and they're all amazing. And you know, like I have a an amazing brother and sister in law, and they're it's funny they're super into food now, um, and like their kids are too. So like I'll get phone calls that like my niece baked my brother a birthday cake and stuff like that. It's, and it's great, um, but just having people like like my current staff or like you know my my old staff at my restaurant um people like paul who you know really like embraced me when he had the opportunity to bring me to pqm he was like this is the guy and i'm excited about this and just having great people throughout my career even though my career hasn't been super traditional and we've kind of had a bunch of stumbling blocks uh, it always comes back to the people that help you out and that want you to succeed. You know, and there is no better person for me to attribute any kind of success to than my wife. Like yeah. she is, we got, when we, before we opened the original Butcher and Larder and we were, we knew we had to leave Motto, I said, you know, our plan was always to open a restaurant, run it the way we want and make the food we want and, you know, support farms and that whole thing. I was like, and we did that. We We did that thing. And we were successful in that people love this place and we knew the food we put out was great. And we got written up in the New York Times. We got three stars from Phil Vitell. Like we did all these great things with this, this little place against all odds. I was like, if we're done, we're done. I was like, I'll get a corporate job. Like I'll work at a hotel or a country club and I'll work nine to five and I'll take a paycheck. And she just looked at me without, without hesitation and said, but you'll be so miserable. <laughs> and, you know, I think... Most of that was for my sake, and I think a, a good chunk of that was because she didn't want to be around me when I'm miserable all the time, yeah. which is fair. But, like, she was <laughs> the one who was like, you can't do that. Yeah. And uh, and then she really thought opening a butcher shop was a cool idea. And, uh, you know, and she raised our daughter. Like, you know, like I was knee-deep in animals all the time. And she was at the shop a lot doing, you know, working on stuff. But, like, you know... Like, I'd like to think that we are equal parents, but I know in the early days and especially throughout the pandemic, you know, she she took a lot of time to make sure that our kid was taken care of. And, uh, you know, and that's the kind of thing that you don't ever lose sight of. Yeah. But, yeah, she's amazing. It's a good partnership. Yeah. Um, all right. And then the last question. What is something that bars or restaurants or butcher shops do <laughs> that might annoy you? Um... Is, I mean, I put a lot of thought into this question, and I'm always thinking about this question. Um, and I've heard bits and pieces of things from other people on the on the show. I think that, you know, like I've been to places recently where I know that the food is good and I know that the cocktails are great. But there's this sort of, I don't know if it's an arrogance or just this sort of air of like, you should be happy to be here and you know, don't try and chit chat with us. Don't ask us questions. Just order what you want and we'll give it to you. And that's fine. Yeah. And it's like, aren't we over that kind of thing? Yeah. It's the worst, you know, like I, I'm, it's not like I'm going to be the kind of customer that sits at a bar and wants to like take up all the bartenders time No, but because I know people are busy, but like, yeah. you know, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I might have a, a question. I'd like to think that my question is going to be kind of interesting to a bartender. Yeah. You know, sure. Um, but regardless, because, you know, bartenders and butchers have a lot in common. 
um, in that you work across a counter and people want to talk to you. And there are times when I'll be stuck with a, with a guest for a long, long time and they're asking me the most useless questions. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because they're so into it. Yeah, you still have to give them. Yeah. I'm yeah, usually the guy like, behind them in line like, come on, <laughs> come on. <laughs> and and part, of it, part of it is dealing with that. Part of it is being like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accommodate you in absolutely the best way I can, but I do have these other people. And it's like, how do you balance that? Yeah. And, um, but mainly it's just like if somebody's coming into your establishment, especially now, make sure that they leave feeling great. Yeah. And, you know, if it's putting up with a stupid question or 10, then it's like, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. Like they're into it. Like in, celebrate the fact that they're into what you're doing. You know, you're behind the bar coming up with these cocktails and no matter how important you think that might be, you're not operating on somebody's heart. That's right. Um, so embrace the fact that there's a person here who is like really trying to nerd out with you just a little bit and make them leave your establishment feeling like they just had the best time. Yeah. And, you know, anything short of that, I think, is really off-putting. Like, it's caused me to never go back to a place. For, yeah, mm-hmm. same. You know, and that's yeah, hospitality, yeah. right? We're For supposed sure. to be making people feel great. Absolutely. Uh, real quick, one oh, last thing. Oh, that I was just curious about, do you know offhand the favorite sandwiches of Paul, Donnie, and Terry? Favorite sandwiches? Yeah. Well, Terry doesn't eat. <laughs> um, like, ask Come to think anybody, of it, I've never seen that guy eat. <laughs> for real. Um, he came into Mata once. And, you know, and it was like, I think it was four people and he was there. And I ran the food, and I set it down, and I stood there, and he looked at me, and I was like, "I just want to see you eat something, man." And he laughed, <laughs> you know. And then I left him alone. But um, but that's like that's always the joke it's is that Terry funny. doesn't eat. Okay. Um, and then Paul and Donnie, um, like I don't, I wouldn't say I don't know that they have a favorite sandwich in particular because they are notorious noshers. They are grazers. So Paul will come into the kitchen, and he'll walk up to the pass, and he'll grab a couple French fries. And then he'll grab a crouton and he'll grab a spoon and he'll have a spoonful of ribolita from the, from the soup well. And then he'll move down and he'll see what's on the speed rack and he'll like, there'll be a roast beef and he'll like tear off a corner and eat that. And then he'll walk over to my board and there'll be like a pate on my cutting board and he'll like cut a little slice. And then he'll, <laughs> and he'll do that and then he'll go upstairs and on his way out, he'll like wander over and grab a piece of cheese off, you know, like somebody's making a charcuterie board and then he'll grab a, a cookie and break it in half and put it down and eat a cookie on his way out the door <laughs> we can't sell so, half this cookie what the hell yeah well it's you know and then we get to eat the rest but like that's that's paul he's yeah. a he's a grazer and a nosher do you think he's hungry or do you think he's doing quality checks i think he is Both. partially doing quality checks i think that he's just he just can't help himself yeah you know there have been times when i've been like prepping a special dinner and I'll have a limited amount of something, and I'll see him like, oh, what's this? And I'll be like, and I'm watching and I'm counting, like, yeah, like how, what how many like, pistachios yeah. do I have left that it took me you know, all this time to make just right? And I'll see him have a couple more, a couple more, a couple more, and I'm like, do I have any left? You know, um, you know. I, so I think like when we do tastings, you know, there's always, you know, it's, he'll never say like, this is my favorite sandwich ever. And he's never said that about anything. He'll be like, oh, this was really good or that was really good. Like that mortadella sandwich I was telling you about, um, I didn't even intend for him to taste it. I was, it was me and Kyle and um, Brian Houston, our culinary director, were trying some things. And then Paul just wandered in. And I don't even think he asked. I think he just picked it up and took a bite. Um, and he was like, this is insane. 
And oh, I was that's like, cool. that's a pretty big compliment. Done. Yeah. Put it on board. That's high um, praise. So, yeah. So he really liked that one. That's the most recent thing that he's been really happy with. Okay, cool. So, uh, and then Donnie is kind of the same way. Donnie will come in and like, he'll grab a bunch of stuff. Like, you know, like you see this tornado go through the kitchen and then he'll be upstairs <laughs> in the counter with like a little bowl of French fries and a cup of soup and a piece of cheese and a half a croissant or, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. this weird mishmash of stuff. And then, and then he'll leave okay. every once in a while. He'll order a sandwich, but it's really just kind of like, yeah, these are some great insights. Yeah. Oh, they're like the it. best. They're yeah. all the best. All right, cool. Well, that's a wrap on Rob Levitt. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being great here. Great company, you know? That concludes our conversation with Rob Levitt of Public and Quality Meats. Thanks for joining us this week. And remember to check us out on Instagram at JoinersPod for exclusive content. That includes cocktails designed by Danny Shapiro for each guest, throwback photos on Thursdays, and now our new video reels that show clips from our interviews. This episode was produced by Matt Haddock and music by Captain Cuts. See you next week.